I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 57, The Right of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality and the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 1, pages 308 to 323. By mid-century, the apostles had developed into an elite secret society with heavily homoerotic undertones, a distinctively aggressive agnostic flavor, and politics that were decidedly liberal and pacifistic. According to Richard Deacon, author of the Cambridge Apostles, their agenda embraced the laicization of the university and the abolition of religious tests for undergraduates and graduates. Spiritual rot was afoot. Deacon also reported that members like William Johnson Corey, Lord Rosebery's tutor, had already taken to recruiting other, other active homosexuals into the new order. Understandably, since homosexuality as well as agnosticism and atheism and anti-imperialistic sentiments were generally unwelcome in Victorian life and an obstacle to career advancement, the growing emphasis on secretiveness was both logical and necessary. According to Andrew Sinclair, another expert on the apostles, the society was a kind of Cambridge mafia. All members, when accepted into the society, had to swear a fearful oath that their souls would risk an unendurable pain for all eternity if they were to betray the society to anyone not a member. For many of its socially alienated members, the society was functioned more as a family than an organization, a place where these perpetually adolescent misfits, in love with their own sense of superiority and importance, didn't have to worry about competing in the real world for either women or commercial jobs or social position. By the turn of the century, members with decidedly pederastic desires, such as the congenital bachelor, Goldsworthy, Goldsworthy Lowe's Dickinson, a well-known disciple of Socratic love, were recruiting qualified embryos based less on their intellectual qualifications than on their good looks and physical attributes. The new high church of the apostles now aggressively warred against Christianity. It boasted its own line of apostolic secession and mystical hierarchy, as well as its own dogma, religious services, and blessings all of which served to mock Christian doctrine and the sacraments and replaced the sacred scripture with a new Bible that touted the merits, that touted the virtues of the higher sodomy. The fact that a significant number of apostles engaged in sexually criminal behavior buttressed their sense of mutual dependency and loyalty toward one another, not merely during their university years, but for a lifetime. The Bloomsbury connection. It would be impossible to understand the inner workings of the apostles and the society's connection to the Cambridge spy organization without at least a brief reference to the Bloomsbury group to which many of its most influential members were intimately tied. This exclusive and influential cultural coterie developed out of a series of friendships between the well-to-do literary and artistic Stephen children, Vanessa, Virginia, Julian, Toby, and Adrian, and their Cambridge friends that included such prominent apostles as John Maynard Keynes, Lytton Strachey, Duncan Grant, and E.M. Forster, novelist D.H. Lawrence's pointed description of Bloomsbury Bloomsbury's as little swarming cells reflected the self-absorbed queer character of the group that held court on Thursday evenings at the Stephan residence at 46 Gordon Square in the Bohemian Bloomsbury section of London. Bloomsbury's were agnostic, politically liberal, pacifist, and sexually liberated. Sexual partnerings were of primary importance within the closed Bloomsbury Collective. 
All affairs, homosexual, bisexual, and heterosexual, were in a constant state of flux and reconfiguration. For example, Vanessa Stephan was married to the wealthy coal heir Clive Bell, but had a child by the handsome Scottish-born painter artist Duncan Grant, who was attracted to Vanessa's brother Adrian, but who also had a string of homosexual affairs with fellow apostles Keynes and Strachey, who had been engaged in a bitter tug-of-war over the society's new acquisition, Arthur Lee Hobhouse, who had fallen head over heels in love with Grant, who later formed a menage a trois with Vanessa and Grant's new lover, David Garnett. When World War I began and young eligible men became in short supply, some of the Apostle Bloomsbury buggers, as Virginia Stephen Wolf used to call them, began to console themselves with female companions and a few even discovered the joys of domesticity. For instance, the outrageously promiscuous Keynes whom the jealous Strachey once referred to as safety bicycle with generals later in life, fell in love with and much to the alarm of his fellow apostles and Bloomsbury's, actually married and successfully so, Lydia Lopakova, one of the greatest dancers of Diaghilev's Russian ballet. Given the overall importance of great influences of the apostles and their Bloomsbury intimates on Cambridge University life in the late 1920s and early 1930s, it was logical that the NKVD's efforts at recruiting rich, upper-class young men for their extended expanded spy ring at Cambridge would have included plans to exploit both groups. As related by Andrew Sinclair in the, thir- in the Red and the Blue, Cambridge Treason and Intelligence, the actual takeover of the apostles by the Soviets proved to be a relatively uncomplicated operation. By the late 1920s, the affinity for Marxism had become as important a requirement for membership in the secret society as good looks and intelligence. Sinclair reported that of the 26 apostles elected between 1927 and 1937, 20 of them, that is 75%, of the new membership were either socialists, Marxist sympathizers, Marxists, or committed communists. This in a student body that was no more than a fraction of 1% communist, he emphasized. The active hostility of the Bloomsbury apostles toward Christianity and traditional morality and their clandestine network of criminal and illicit sects when combined with the equally forbidden and subversive agenda of Marxist world revolution made for an explosive mix that, when fully activated, would prove a deadly one for the British nation. Anthony Blunt, A Treasonable Life. On May May 5, 1928, the first man of the Cambridge Ring of Five, the 19-year-old Trinity undergraduate Anthony Frederick Blunt was accepted into the inner sanctum of the society as Apostle Number 273. Blunt's immediate predecessors in the apostolic line of the society were Alistair Watson and Philip Dennis Proctor, both of whom either were or became Soviet agents. In the fall of 1928, the enthusiastic Marxist revolutionary Julian Bell, Vanessa and Clive's son, followed his lover, Blunt, into the society. Julian, who was killed in the Spanish Civil War, was not a particularly attractive young youth, but in but the short-lived affair gave Blunt an entree into the art and homosexual world of the Bloomsbury group. That is to say, Julian proved useful to Blunt, and useful people were Blunt's forte. 
Anthony Brunt was born on September 26, 1907, in the small provincial town of Bournemouth, Hampshire, and to an affluent upper-middle-class family with strong roots in the church, to the Church of England. Blunt's paternal grandfather had been suffragan bishop of Hull. His father, Reverend Arthur Stanley Vaughan Blunt, also a well-known Anglican cleric, was appointed chaplain in 1912 to St. Michael's. The British Embassy Church in Paris, where Sir Francis Bertie was serving as Britain's ambassador. It was in Paris that young Anthony was first exposed to his lifelong passion of French Renaissance art. According to Miranda Carter, one of Blunt's more contemporary biographers, the young boy's claim to fame came from the maternal side of the family tree. His mother, Hilda Violet Master Blunt, of the 16th century landed gentry masters of Barrow Green, was second cousin to the Earl of Strathmore, the father of the future Queen Elizabeth II. In the Blunt family constellation, little Anthony was the runt of the litter and his mother's favorite, said Carter. Hilda doted on her very bright, pretty, blue-eyed son, whose delicate health demanded extra solicitous care and attention. Anthony, in turn, formed a lifelong attachment to his oldest brother, Wilfred, with whom he shared a nascent artistic temperament and attachment. This left middle brother Christopher out in the cold, said Carter. As each blunt boy reached boarding school age, he was sent back to England to receive his education at Marlborough, one of Britain's great schools that catered to the sons of clergymen. Anthony arrived at the prestigious public school in January 1921 at the age of 14, thoroughly prepared to light up the school with his academic brilliance and sense of noblesse oblige. Alas, it was a rude awakening for the young man to discover that at Marlborough, Athletes, athletics were all, and he was neither physically or temperamentally inclined toward organized sports. Further, upperclassmen who served as prefects ruled over all aspects of campus life. Robert Cecil, a former classmate of Blunt's, reported that young Blunt was able to beat the system by catering to the sexual needs of senior boys and prefects. Cecil's statement was backed up by other former Marlborough boys, including academic John Hilton, who noted that by his senior year, Blunt had had a number of serious homosexual affairs and a stable of favorites who were sometimes referred to as the elect. Hilton, along with Blunt and the future poet Louis McNeese, another clerk's son, formed a Wildean aesthetic trio behind which the lads were able to disguise their rejection of their religious heritage. Hilton described Anthony in his later years at Marlborough as an austere hedonist, living for gratification of the senses with an eye for social esteem and seeking anchorage in a system of scholarly detail. Young Anthony was apparently a rebel with a cause at a relatively young age. Some contemporaries recalled that Blunt was notorious for his vindictiveness and personal vendettas. Others recall his reptilian coldness. All agreed that he was exceedingly conceited about his intellectual abilities, which in fact were very good. There is one word that never appeared on the lips of Blunt's friends, of which there were a few uh, or foes when describing his character. That word was kind. Blunt was a totally self-absorbed, selfish individual. 
In October 1926, Blunt entered Trinity College, Cambridge, on a marble scholarship. When his efforts to gain honors in mathematics failed, he switched to modern languages, with especially in French. In the meantime, his interest in art grew apace, although here he met with another source of frustration. Blunt was very intelligent, but according to art master Christopher Hughes, he had little artistic ability himself. The creatively impotent Blunt soothed his wounded ego by later becoming an art historian, critic, and cultural revolutionary. One of Blunt's closest friends was Knox Cunningham, later Sir, who attended Fitzclair College in Cambridge. Cunningham was to later go on to a distinguished political career in Parliament and serve as private secretary to Prime Minister Harold Macmillan from 1959 to 1963. He also held important positions in the Orange Order and the Masonic Province of Gloucester, as well as various Ulster Unionist posts in Northern Ireland. According to Irish-born bisexual writer and full-time gossip, Robin Bryan's pseudonym Robert Harbinson, who became part of London's upscale homosexual clique in the mid-1940s. Cunningham was known as a muffled queen who liked to be screwed by young boys. Bryan said that Cunningham remained in contact with Blunt after his Cambridge years and later became a frequent visitor to Blunt's London home. By 1928, Blunt's connections to Bloomsbury's art critics Clyde Bell and Roger Fry and to Trinity Don and art authority Andrew Gow gave him an entree into London's prestigious art circles. At the same time, his membership and the apostles gave him access to Cambridge's most influential secret society and homosexual network. That Blunt was also a confirmed Marxist by this time has been confirmed by a number of reliable sources, including Lewis McNeese. By ni- in 1932, Blunt was elected a Trinity Fellow. He remained on campus where he tutored in French and began to carve out a career in art history with a special passion for the work of Nicolas Poussin. Somewhere between 1933 and 1934, either before, during, or immediately after an academic tour, tour of Moscow, Blunt was officially recruited as a paid Soviet agent. He was given the code name Jan, Johnson, and Tony. It remained somewhat of an irony that had Blunt ventured out of his downtown Moscow hotel to engage in a little cottaging during his trip. He might have noticed that the sexual pickings were rather lean, except, of course, for KGB-trained male ravens who regularly monitored public urinals and other haunts frequented by foreign homosexual, foreigner homosexuals. This dearth of available young Moscovites was due to the fact that in early 1933, Stalin had given the OGPU political police permission to begin a roundup of Moscow homosexuals who were shipped for use as slave labor to prison work camps like that at the third watershed on the Baltic White Baltic Wild Canal that housed about 3,000 Moscow homosexuals. 
There is no evidence, however, that Blunt ever expressed any objection to Stalin's purchase of sodomites in Moscow once the news became public knowledge to London's homosexual underground, nor that Soviet sexual entrapment either in Moscow, London, or Cambridge ever played a role in inducing Blunt to betray his country. He did it out of sheer pleasure. Thanks to his many influential patrons and close friends, including the transcendent socialite Victor Rothschild, Blunt's influence in the art field grew. From 1937 to 1939, he worked on the staff of the Warburg Institute of the University of London, a progressive and revolutionary art research center, and produced his first book on Renaissance art, Artistic Theory in Italy, 1450 to 1600 which was dedicated to his dear friend, Guy Burgess. According to Charles Salmeras Smith, a book reviewer for The Observer, among Blunt's severest critics was Rebecca West, who knew Blunt in the 1930s and regarded him then as intellectually lightweight, a known communist, always sporting a red tie and frequently drunk. When England entered the Second World War, Blunt volunteered to serve in the British Army, was commissioned an officer, served briefly in the military security police in military intelligence, and then was ordered by the Soviets to join M-15, the British Security Service. It should be noted that prior to Blunt's entry into M-15, he had used the influence of his brother Christopher to enter Menley Manor in Hampshire to take an Army Staff College course on counterintelligence. His commander on, at that time was Colonel Shearer, who told Blunt that he had received orders from the War Office in London that Blunt was not to be assigned to intelligence work. However, the departmental recommendation was overridden when a highly placed senior civil servant intervened on his behalf. The ministerial official was none other than Dennis Proctor, later Sir an apostle and Soviet agent who served as private secretary to former Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin. Blunt also got assistance from Victor Rothschild, who was working for M-15, and Guy Burgess, who was assigned to Section D of M-16. Captain Maxwell Knight, a homosexual who joined, the M-15, who joined M-15 in 1925, warned M-15 officials about the, that bugger Blunt but his lone voice was ignored. Unfortunately, Knight was never far out of the woods himself, given his occult connections to Satanist Aleister Crowley. Knight was also personally compromised by his passionate obsession with Tom Dryberg, Lord Bradwell, a lover of Burgess, an MP, who served the Soviets as a paid agent for 12 years. Tom Dryberg's arrangement with the Soviets went back, went way back when he solicited sex from a man at a public urinal on one of his visits to Moscow. The man turned out to be a KGB agent of the SCD Second Chief Directorate. After Dryberg was confronted with photographs of his sex acts with the Soviet raven, he started to serve Moscow using the code name Agent Orange. The Soviets used Dryberg to gather political intelligence on the Labor Party and to promote active measures in political circles, 
within his sphere of influence. The KGB also had photographs of Dryberg engaging in homosexual with Guy Burgess. During the five or so intervening years between his recruitment and his activation by his Soviet controller in 1939, Blunt had already proven to be a valuable spotter and recruiter for the Soviets. Although contrary to popular opinion, he did not recruit the three other known members of the Cambridge team, Guy Burgess, Donald McLean, or Harold Kim Philby. Despite his increased professional responsibilities as a double agent, Blunt managed to carry on a satisfactory and relatively open sex life that included a string of affairs with other Cambridge homosexuals of his own class, including John Lehman, an Etonian who became a Soviet underground courier, and Blunt's longtime lover, Peter Montgomery, second cousin of British World War II hero, Field Marshal Montgomery. Peter Montgomery became a musical director at the BBC and later a wartime Army intelligence staff officer. The reader may want to put a mental check mark after his name as we shall be revisiting Peter Montgomery and his brother, Hugh, again in greater depth at the end of this chapter. In terms of sexual partners, however, Blunt preferred rough trade, partners who were both his intellectual and social inferior and over whom he could exert his desire for power and dominance. This desire for power was a trial, was a trait that was not lost on the Cambridge Soviet talent scouts who found in young Blunt all the characteristics of a successful trader, a superior but underappreciated intelligence, ruthless ambition, solipsism to the nth degree, homosexuality, a vice that could be exploited, and an ability to compartmentalize his life and play out many roles. Psychoanalysis aside, perhaps, book reviewer David Price Jones, writing on the, in the new criterion best summarized the essence of Blunt's being in his simple yet poignant epithet, Blunt was a shit through and through. Guy Burgess, the conspicuous spy. In his autobiographical reminiscences, fellow Cambridge spy Kim Philby once remarked that he, Burgess, must have been one of the very few people to have forced themselves into the Soviet Special Service. He was a very special case. While the Soviets were clearly anxious to recruit him, wrote Philby, he himself was of the opinion that Burgess's unrelenting capacity for making himself conspicuous would compromise him as a secret agent. In the end, however, Philby and his Soviet controller Otto correctly concluded that it would be better to bring Philip Burgess into their spy circle than leave him out in the cold, especially as he was likely to break the door down anyway. But it was that, thus it was that in the summer of 1934, Guy Francis de Monsey Burgess entered the annals of history as the most conspicuous member of the Cambridge spy ring. His code name was Matchen, German for girl. Guy Burgess came from good military stock, born in 1911 in the West Country's most famous naval port of Devonport, Plymouth. Guy was the eldest son of the naval, naval officer, Lieutenant Commander Malcolm Kingsforth Burgess and Evelyn Gilman Burgess. He had a younger brother, Nigel. 
The young Burg young Burgess had just entered Eton in January 1924 at the age of 13 when his father died. About three years later, his widowed mother remarried, but the spoiled and cosseted guy and his stepfather, Colonel John R. Bassett, DBO, a retired British Army officer, did not hit <coughs> did not hit it off well. So it was off to military school with him. Shortly after his 16th birthday, in keeping with his family's maritime tradition, Guy was sent to the Royal Naval College at Dartmouth, but he, Dartmouth, but he never graduated. 33 months after his entrance to the Naval College, he abruptly left and returned to Eton, ostensibly because of failing eyesight. The suddenness and circumstances of his departure, however, gave credence to the theory that Burgess was privately dismissed from Dartmouth because he had attempted to sexually seduce other cadets into homosexual liaisons. So it was back to Eton, where the extremely bright and handsome Burgess captured both the Roseberry and Gladstone History Prizes and a scholarship in history to Trinity, to Trinity College, Cambridge, where, which he entered in October 1930. Not surprisingly, his Adonis good looks and personal charm, keen intelligence, love of young men, and anti-fascist pro-Marxist sentiments, which he enthusiastically wore on his sleeve, quickly brought him to the attention of Soviet-infiltrated apostles. He was initiated into society, along with his close friend, Victor Rothschild, one of the few scientists ever accepted into the Apostles. On the evening of November 12, 1932, Burgess also joined the Cambridge University Socialist Society, CUSS, that was gradually being taken over by the Communists. In June 1934, Burgess visited Germany. He was in Berlin during Hitler's political purge, the Night of the Long Knives. Next, Burgess joined a small Cambridge tour group to Moscow that included Anthony Blunt and Burgess' friend Derek Blakey, an Axonian communist killed in World War II. One of the many stories told about Burgess' stay in Moscow was that he was found by the Soviet police dead drunk in the park of rest and culture, and outside of his, and inside of his coat pocket, the police discovered letters of introduction to prominent Russian scholars and politicians from members of the Astor family. Burgess later claimed that while in Moscow, he had a long secret interview with Nikolai Bukharin, a powerful member of the Soviet Politburo and editor of Izvestia. All things considered, it was probably in Moscow where Burgess and Blunt were given their final vetting by Stalin's agents. Guy Burgess had successfully fought his way into the ranks of the Cambridge spies. Although Burgess was fired up politically, his greatest passion was passion, that is, homosex. Seduction, especially of older men, was his forte. Although any man who walked upright was a potential target for a sexual overture. His Cambridge classmate, Garonwi Reese, explained that Guy regarded sex as a useful machine for the manufacture of pleasure, and at one time or another, he went to bed with most of his friends. Reese said, he, Guy, was a kind of public schoolboy's guide to the mysteries of sex, and he fulfilled his function almost with a sense of public service. 
Such affairs did not last long, but Guy had the ability, had the faculty of retaining the affection of those he went to bed with, and also in some curious way of maintaining a kind of permanent domination over them. Long after the affair was over, he continued to assist friends in their sexual lives, which were often troubled and unsatisfactory, to listen to their emotional difficulties and, when necessary, find suitable partners for them. To such people, he was a combination of father, confessor, and pimp, and the number of people who were under obligation to him must have been very large indeed. Among Burgess's earliest sexual conquests at Cambridge were Anthony Blunt, who was besotted by Burgess, the effeminate bisexual Don McLean, who was recruited at the same time as Burgess, and even the notorious womanizer Kim Philby, who assisted in Burgess's recruitment. Burgess, like Blunt, also pursued sex with working-class young men and recommended them to his Cambridge homosexual friends as a means of releasing them from their bourgeois hang-ups. Jackie Hewitt, who was one of Burgess's living partners who bed-hopped between Guy and Anthony. Years later, after Burgess fled to Moscow and British intelligence services interviewed Hewitt about his relationship with Guy, Hewitt told them that Guy kept all his love letters not for blackmail, but as proof of, to himself of his own power to make men love him. Although it is clear that the native, that uh, clear that the naive Hewitt would not have been privy to if or how Burgess's controllers used the love letters, Jackie was right on the money when he noted that Burgess's homosexual affairs were part of a power, power game that Burgess used to control other men. Hewitt was also correct when he told the SIS agents that the mostly heterosexual Miss M15 and M16 agents, the dynamics of the gay world in the 1930s must have seemed an incomprehensible web of interlocking relationships. Unfortunately for the British, the Soviets did comprehend the scope and exploitability of the Humintern on a worldwide scale and put that knowledge to excellent use against their enemies in England, the United States, and Europe. Kim Philby, Master Spy. Of all the Cambridge traders, Harold Adrian Russell Philby, by way of his parentage and background, was most likely, most likely would have been voted the most likely to succeed in the spy business. Born on New Year's Day 1912 in Ambala, India, where his father, St. John Philby, was served as a high-ranking civil servant in the Indian government, Philby was nicknamed Kim after Kipling's young hero. When Sir John was stricken with wanderlust and abandoned his Protestant faith to follow Muhammad along the lines of T. E. Lawrence, his wife Doris took over the rearing of Kim and his three sisters. Sir John's prolonged absences from home, which apparently his wife did not mind, and his strict sense of discipline and lack of warmth towards his own children when he was at home, created family tensions that were to leave an indelible mark on his young son. The sensitive and serious Kim developed a stutter early on in his childhood that he retained for life. The negative influence of father upon son can also be seen in Philby's self-centered cynicism that came to characterize his relationship toward his fellow creatures, especially women, 
as well as his instinct for duplicity and self-preservation at all costs so necessary in the espionage game. On September 18, 1924, the 12-year-old Kim entered his father's, his famous father's alma mater, Westminster. Academically, he excelled, winning the Marshall Memorial Prize for history, and he eventually developed some competency in sports. Emotionally speaking, however, he remained stunted. His speech impediment grew into a major source of embarrassment. His antipathy toward Protestant religious observances at the school increased his sense of religious and moral conflict. As an underclassman, he was subject to sexual exploitation by seniors and prefects. I was buggered and bugged at Westminster, he would later admit. But perhaps most telling was the charge that he was that was brought against young Philby during his third year at Westminster. One of Philby's, one of King Kim's tutors by the name of Luce reported to school officials that Philby had developed a propensity for untruthfulness, that is, he had lied or cheated on a serious matter. Indeed, among his own classmates, Kim had already assigned, acquired a reputation for deceitful behavior. In the end, the matter was set aside, no doubt due to Sir John's influence, and Philby was allowed to continue at Westminster. He graduated the following year with two scholarships, one for Christ Church, Oxford, and the other for Trinity College, Cambridge. At his father's insistence, he selected Trinity. Kim was 17 when he went up to Cambridge in the spring of 1929. Although he was originally drawn to a career in politics, Kim's disappointing academic performance in his history exams forced him to switch his major to economics in October 1931. His personal interest in politics continued, however, given Sir John's affinity for socialism, it was not surprising that his son should eventually be drawn further left to the more daring and revolutionary tendencies of Marxism. For starters, that summer, Philby joined and later became an officer of the Cambridge University Socialist Society. Through Dennis Holmes Robertson, later Sir, Kim, Kim's director of studies in economics, who was also a closeted member of Cambridge's Circle of Homosexual Acad Academicians, Philby was introduced to the campus's most sought-after stud, Guy Burgess. The two men formed a strong friendship that was reinforced when Philby joined the Apostles in 1932, the same year that Guy Burgess had entered the society. Although Philby was not a homosexual, given the relentlessness with which Guy pursued his sexual quarry and Kim's adventurous temperament, his rebellious attitude toward establishment mores and heavy drinking, it is possible that the two men did engage in a brief and transitory affair at Cambridge. Immediately after graduating from Trinity in the summer of 1933 with a second-class degree in economics, Philby filled out an application for the Foreign Service. That fall, he set off for a vacation trip to Europe, where he mixed romance with his growing interest in the Comintern. On the suggestion of Professor Maurice II, Maurice H. Dobb, a Marxist recruiter at Cambridge, Philby met communist leaders in Paris, including Willie Munzenberg, a recruiter for the NKVD. The Paris Committee provided him with communist contacts in Vienna, where he met on, on February 23, 1934, married Alice Lizzie Friedman, a 23-year-old Polish 
Jewish divorcee who was a member of a number of revolutionary groups, including the Zionist Socialist Movement and the revolutionary socialists that were working against the Dolphus government. Lizzie confirmed Kim's commitment to Marxism. Upon returning to England the following April, Philby immediately met with Dolph. He also visited Commons Party headquarters on King Street, London. He told party officers that he and Lizzie wanted to join the KGB, but he was instructed to wait. Soon afterwards, Philby was put in touch with Otto, who had been assigned as his caseworker and controller. Kim was informed that under no circumstances was he to put was he to join the party, as this would hinder his entrance into the Foreign Service. Instead, Philby became a Soviet spy and mole. One of Philby's first assignments was to spy on his own father, whom the Soviets suspected was a, was a British spy. Dutifully, Kim went through Sir John's papers at his London residence. In the meantime, Philby began his began to make out his list of potential recruits. At the bottom of his list was was Guy Burgess. Near the top of his list was Donald McLean. Donald McLean, the deadly innocent. The crest of the clan McLean bears the words Virtue, mine house, mine, virtue, mine honor. Cambridge by Don Stuart McLean, Don Stuart McLean, 1913 to 1983. However, upheld neither the virtue nor honor of his Scottish ancestors. Considered to be the quintessential young diplomat on the rise, Donald McLean, code names Wise, Lyric, Homer, and Stuart, was the younger son of the Sir Donald McLean a staunch Presbyterian, successful solicitor, Liberal Party MP who served as Minister of Education under Stanley Baldwin's national government and as President of the Board of Trade of the, in the Ramsey MacDonald's National Coalition Government of 1931. Young Donald's physical features and temperament, the thin blonde of feet, and general reflected his mother's beauty and kindly demeanor rather than his father's aggressive and imposing features. Following in the footsteps of his elder brother, Ian, Donald was educated at the elite Gresham School at Holt on the Norfolk coast. The vast majority of Gresham's alumni annually moved on to top British universities, including Cambridge, Oxford, Balliol and Christchurch, McLean's McLean was no exception. Unfortunately, by the time McLean left Grisham's for Trinity Hall, Cambridge in 1931, at the age of 18, he had contracted two revolutionary viruses, one political communism and the other sexual homosexuality. The winsome McLean soon found himself in the company of Burgess, Blunt, and Philby, the former soon added Donald to his long list of sexual conquests, while the latter helped recruit him as a Soviet spy. Although the gung-ho McLean was intent on emigrating, emigrating to the workers' part of paradise, he was finally persuaded to take the civil service exam in order to secure a position in the foreign office, which he succeeded in doing 
in October of 1935, largely in the reputation of his recently deceased father. McLean's first posting with the Foreign Office was Secretary of the Western Department was responsibility for the Low Countries, Switzerland, Spain, and Portugal, but the old boys' network at Whitehall, as the Soviets had anticipated, soon promoted him to the office of Secretary at the British Embassy in Paris. From here, McLean began to supply Moscow with diplomatic secrets and information on British foreign policy. It was in Paris that the sexually ambivalent McLean met and married the American heiress Melinda Marling. At the start of the Second World War, McLean and his new wife, who was informed by her husband that he was a Soviet agent, returned to England, where he continued to supply Moscow with top-secret documents while he awaited his next diplomatic appointment. Cambridge Moles burrow in for maximum impact. In 1935, when Stalin issued orders that communist agents abroad go underground or, if necessary, fake a conversion to fascism, the Cambridge spies were forced to change their political spots and burrow deeper into their holes. It was great fun. When we last left Blunt, he had joined M15, where he had begun making his way up the intelligence ladder. Between 1940 and 1945, and even after the war was over, Blunt continued to pass on to Moscow top-secret documents from both M15 and M16, as well as German-coded messages that had been deciphered at Bletchley, Bletchley Park, some 17,000 pieces of classified materials in all that included invaluable information on vital Allied post-war polices with regard to Poland, Latvia, and Czechoslovakia that enabled the Soviets to bring down the Iron Curtain in Europe. Blunt also provided the Soviets with the names of thousands of Russian expatriates living in Britain, many of whom, along with their wives and children, were forcibly returned and systematically slaughtered by Stalin under the provisions of the Yalta Agreement. Blunt and Philby provided the Soviets with details on the Allied landing at Normandy in the summer of 1944, as well as on various M-15 operations, like the like 20 double cross that involved <sighs> turning both German and Soviet agents, including Anatoly Gorsky, the first secretary of the Soviet embassy in London, who just happened to be Blunt's controller, double X, double cross. In addition to sending thousands of foreigners to their death, Blunt, who had an almost photographic memory, was bound, proud of the fact that he had passed onto the Soviets the name of every M-15 officer. He also had access to the security betting files of M-15, information from which was also sent to Moscow. According to intelligence writer John Costello, author of Mask of Treachery, Blunt was the personification of the agent of influence. He helped thwart later internal investigations within M15 and M16 by laying false trails away from Burgess, McLean, and Philby while they were still operational and even after they had defected to Moscow. Blunt also recruited a number of important Cambridge academics, including the brilliant linguist John Kercross, 
who was sometimes referred to as the fifth man in the Cambridge spy ring, although there were probably more than a dozen Oxford Soviet agents who could have claimed that title, including a handful of M-15 and M-16 officers. Blunt also recruited Leo Long, an apostle and military intelligence officer posted to M-114, who specialized in code-breaking and signal intelligence. Just before the war ended, King George VI sent Blunt on a highly secret mission to Germany. Although the exact nature of his mission, this mission, that lasted through 1947, remains shrouded in mystery, though not for want of theories, we do know that Blunt was aware of the contents of the private papers he was instructed to retrieve, and that he probably passed that information on to a Soviet controller. According to Costello, his success in procuring the so-called Windsor Files later proved to be a gold-plated insurance policy against prosecution for treason over the next 34 years, indeed for his entire lifetime. After the war, Blunt continued his career as an art historian and critic and, a, and as a traitor. From 1945 to 1979, he held the position of surveyor of the king's later queen's pictures, in which capacity he administered the royal family's extensive collections. In 1947, he was appointed director of the Courtwald, uh, the Courtauld Institute of Art. Three years later, he was elected a fellow of the British Academy, and in 1960, he became professor of art history at the University of London. He was knighted in 1956. In his salad days, Blunt became somewhat of a fixture at Buckingham Palace in Windsor Castle, where he maintained offices. It became somewhat of a standing joke that when Blunt walked down the halls, the palace guardsmen would quip about the necessity of putting their backs to the wall, said Costello. Obviously, homosexuality was no detriment to employment in, by the royals, and never had been. Homosexual personal valets and couriers, courtiers in the royal household, like homosexual diplomats in the foreign office, had distinct advantages over family men who by necessity were distracted by the cares of family daily life. They could afford to be overly solicitous with their time and attention and were always on call. Some royal valets and attendants were also known to sexually service their masters. Blunt and Burgess did much of their entertaining of M15 and M16 officers and staff at their five Bentick Street flat, a three-story masonette building with recording and photo photograph facilities that was owned by Victor Rothschild. Their guests include, included Major General Sir Stuart, Sir Stuart Menzies, head of M16 from 1939 to 1952, Sir Dick White, head of M15 from 1953 to 1956, and later director of M16 from 1956 to 1968, Sir Roger, Roger Hollis, dubbed Mr. Inertia, and reputed to be bisexual, who headed M15 from 1956 to 1965, and Captain Guy Maynard Little, a deputy director of M15. The fact that Little and Hollis spent so much time in the company of homosexuals like Blunt and Burgess on a regular basis later made Little and Hollis candidates for M15's fifth man or super mole contest. The criticism leveled against Hollis and Little 
however, applied to virtually all of the upper echelons of British intelligence during the 1940s and 1950s. That is, no director of national intelligence services had a right to be so gullible and trusting. Blunt was also on friendly terms with Sir Dick White, and they used to spend Christmas together with Victor Rothschild in Rothschild's house in Cambridge. The Baron Rothschild and his second wife, Theresa Tess Mayer, a former British intelligence employee, would also visit the Bentick flat from time to time. In essence, Blunt knew everyone who was worth knowing. His privileged education and contacts produced a large number of highly placed and influential friends and protectors, but it was his knowledge of London's high and low homosexual society and the multiple networks that each represented and how they could best be exploited that was of particular value to the Soviets. According to Costello, among the homosexual haunts frequented by Blunt and Burgess and fellow high-class buggers was the Pakenham, a pub centrally located to Whitehall, Buckingham Palace and the barracks of the household cavalry and the guards. The Irish writer Robin Bryant, whom Burgess picked up at Oxford in 1944 and who later became a regular of the Blunt Burgess Circle of Buggers at Pakenham, reported that Blunt was very proud of his royal connections and all his important interlocking associations and talked openly about them at the pub. Blunt also used to boast, also used to host after-hours homosexual orgies at the Courtauld Institute that always drew a large crowd of handsome, aspiring, sexually, and politically exploited young artists and postgraduate students. It appears that the Soviets were more than willing to indulge the sexual eccentricities of the Cambridge spies as long as it was profitable to do so. But it was highly unlikely that the communists ever really trusted any of them. None of the spies was ever given a position of substantive import in the Soviet intelligence services after their defection. Philby remained a colonel in the KGB in name only. Blunt suspected that he, that would be the case, suspected this would be the case, which is why, in the end, he refused to trade in his plush director's flat at the Courtauld Mansion or his offices at the palace for a dreary Moscow suburban flat like McLean, Burgess, and Philby did. The Metamorphosis of Guy Burgess One of the most remarkable aspects of Burgess's life as a sot, a homosexual, a Marxist, and a traitor was that he never lacked for a job or a patron. Late in 1934, after Burgess had failed to make the grade as a don at Cambridge, Victor Rothschild hired the uncouth Goy as a financial consultant at £100 a month per month. Never mind that Burgess was a history major and that Rothschild was a, Rothschilds were a legendary banking dynasty going back three generations. This elaborate and thoroughly transparent ruse, of course, was designed to facilitate the transformation of Burgess from that of a known Marxist to that of a neo-fascist pro-Nazi sympathizer, as per Stalin's directive that Soviet agents go underground and if necessary change roles, change sides. Rothschild and Stalin, it should be remembered, shared the same ostensible enemy, Hitler, where Stalin's interests corresponded with his own. Rothschild appeared willing to cooperate with Soviet agents against Nazi Germany and even the United States. 
1936 to 1937, Rothschild made Burgess the titular editor of a new business and investment newsletter that specialized in German finances. Then the Baron hired a German communist expatriate and homosexual named Rudolf Rolf Gans, who was also a commentary agent, to professionally ghostwrite and edit the publication. The newsletter, along with the well-planted rumor that Burgess had undergone an ideological conversion following his trip to Moscow, facilitated Burgess' entry into the Conservative Party and other right-wing parliamentary circles. Burgess targeted a number of bisexual and homosexual MPs who were known to frequent the Café Royal, the famous watering hole of Oscar Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas. One of his most successful seductions was conservative MP Harold Nicholson, who became Burgess' guardian angel. The pair dined together regularly at the Reform Club, a respectable British establishment that became an important part of Soviet subversion. Nicholson was a married man with a family, but he apparently felt the need for homosexual liaisons to spice up his life. Burgess obliged and was rewarded with more influential contacts within Parliament and the Foreign Office, including Sir Joseph Ball, the Conservative Party's Director of Research, and Archibald Clark Care Lloyd Care Lord Ember Chapel, a married homosexual with a large collection of homosexual porn, and a Soviet valet named Yevgeny Yost. Archibald Kerr served as Britain's ambassador to the United States from May 1947 to May 1948 and became a nemesis of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Obviously, though homosexuality was still illegal in England, sexual deviancy appeared to be no drawback to diplomatic and political advancement for members of Britain's Old Boys Club, regardless of the danger of compromise and blackmail by the Soviets and other foreign agents. It was through men of influence like Rothschild and Nicholson and Ball that Burgess was able to penetrate the pro-fascist Anglo-German fellowship created by Hitler to improve the relations between England and Germany and to advocate for an alliance of the two countries against the Soviet Union. The president of the fellowship was an educated Charles Edward, Duke of Saxe, Coburg and Gotha. His, his membership included a number of influential English aristocrats with German sympathies. Although he did not gain a post in the Conservative Party central office, Burgess did succeed in becoming secretary and personal assistant to the Conservative MP Tory John Robert McNamara, known to his friends as Captain Jack. The 32-year-old former guardsman was a member of the fellowship and a homosexual who quickly fell under Burgess's charms. This affair, in turn, led to another important sexual conquest for Burgess, that of the venerable J.H. Sharp, the Anglican Archdeacon for Southeastern Europe. In the spring of 1936, Burgess accompanied McNamara, Sharp, and Tom Wiley, a young official at the War Office, on a field trip to the Rhineland, sponsored by the Foreign Relations Council of the Church of England. They were to escort a group of neo-pro-fascist schoolboys to a Hitler youth camp. At a stopover in Paris, Captain Jack introduced Guy to Monsieur Edouard Pfeiffer, a close friend of Edouard de la Dier, the future Prime Minister of France, according to Costello, as a connoisseur of homosexual decadence. Pfeiffer had few equals, even in Paris, as an officer of the French 
Boy Scout movement, his private life was devoted to the seduction of youth. The two men became intimate, and Pfeiffer visited Burgess in London when he was in town, recorded Costello. In 1938, when Pfeiffer obtained a leading post in the Deladier government, Burgess was able to pimp was able to pump him for critical information on the French cabinet's position on Nazi Germany. The wealthy American Michael Strait, another of the apostles recruited by Blunt, recalled that during a dinner conversation with Burgess one night, Guy told him that he accompanied Pfeiffer and two members of the French cabinet to a male brothel in Paris one evening. Singing and laughing, they had danced around a table, lashing a naked boy who was strapped to it with leather whips, Burgess told Strait. As Burgess played out his multiple roles, a courier for Rothschild, a Soviet mole, a neo-fascist, a lover of important men, his connections to the emerging home and turn on the continent rapidly expanded. So did his running list that the Soviets had him keep of potential recruits and influential persons that could be sexually compromised. Burgess's tart, Jackie Hewitt, a keen observer of the operations of the international Hamantern, described it as a kind of gay intellectual Freemasonry. He likened it to the five concentric circles of the Olympian ring. One person in one circle knew one another, one and another, and that's how people met. And that's the conclusion of my reading from the right of sodomy today. So I'll end my podcast here, and there's no time for the uh, the catechism. I'm at 57 minutes already. So, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.